Sometimes we do silly things because, well, quite frankly, we're clueless or, or, uh, or we have a momentary lapse of judgment. I read some funny examples online. One guy caught his friend rubbing his piece of uh, fried chicken with an antibacterial wipe from KFC. The hand wipe packet said on it, a hint of lemon. He thought it flavored the chicken. One person stuck a ball of aluminum into the microwave at work with her ramen noodles, and, and uh, when questioned by her coworker, she said, oh, the sparks are just because it's heating up faster. Uh, one guy's uncle had never used a Keurig, and he thought that you had to remove the, the top of the, the K-cup so that the water could actually get to the, the coffee, and he made a mess. One guy lives in a two-story house. He refinished his first floor bathroom and wanted to access the old exhaust fan in the ceiling. And so he headed into his attic looking for the fan in his first floor bathroom. What an idiot! Okay, that guy was me the other week. That, that, that was me. So sometimes we miss the obvious and we do crazy things. And sometimes we learn things that prove our previous assumptions ridiculous or at least incomplete. Intelligent people used to believe that the earth was flat. Less than 125 years ago, parents gladly gave their children heroin, which Bear sold as cough syrup to help with cold symptoms. And doctors increasingly became suspicious when patients kept coming back for bottle after bottle. And when it comes to Jesus, many people have wrong assumptions. And the consequences are immense. Jews believe Jesus was a popular rabbi, but not the Christ born of a virgin. Muslims revere Jesus as a great prophet, but reject his divinity, um, his eternal begottenness, his crucifixion, his resurrection. Mormons believe that Jesus, they believe in Jesus, but they think that he's the first born spirit child of the heavenly father and a heavenly mother and became deity. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus but assume that he was created by Jehovah as the archangel Michael and is a lesser God and after his birth was merely human. Some Hindus gladly affirm the divinity of Jesus as long as he's one God among a multitude of gods and goddesses and many atheists um, believe Jesus as a historical figure, but reject his divinity and miracles. Many intelligent people cannot answer the simple question, who is Jesus? Today's text is comforting, it's hopeful, although it's also difficult and controversial. In fact, this passage contributes to the vast chasm between Protestants and Roman Catholics. Roman Catholics use these verses to justify the authority of the Pope, which Protestants deny. Even Protestants debate the particulars of these verses. My focus will be more on comfort than on controversies. Uh, the debates shouldn't distract us from the clarity and benefit of the passage. So let's try to get the plain sense of these verses and try to draw comfort and try to draw hope from them. Let's hear in order to comprehend, in order to believe, in order to confess, in order to find true and lasting comfort and confidence in Christ. So let's start to unpack these formidable verses first. 
rightly comprehending and confessing Christ is necessary for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Paul said, Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In Acts 4, Peter proclaimed, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. To enter the kingdom of heaven, we must comprehend and confess the true Christ. Trusting a fictitious and false Christ only condemns. I think these subpoints will, will help. Jesus is miscomprehended by the world. Caesarea Philippi was a, a beautiful city by Mount Hermon. Look it up on uh, Google or something. Beautiful scenery. It was about 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Philip the Tetrarch, son of Herod the Great, named the city after Caesar and himself. Here, Jesus taught his disciples marvelous truths. Speaking of himself, he asked them, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, the disciples gave several views. They, uh, they said in verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And the problem with those views is that none comprehend and confess Jesus as the Christ. See, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, and all the, the prophets were prophetic forerunners to the Christ, but were not the Christ. If Jesus is simply one of the prophets, then he is not the Christ. So people recognized his power, his wisdom, his compassion and works, and, and to an extent honored Jesus, but they didn't receive or worship him as Christ. To get a lot about Jesus right, only to get the essentials of Jesus wrong, is to get Jesus entirely wrong and to remain locked outside of the kingdom. Now, do believers know all that there is to know about Christ? No. But those in the kingdom comprehend and confess the essentials of Christ, which God reveals to them kindly in Scripture. Now, what are some essentials? Number two, Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus referred himself as the Son of Man, which is a messianic and uh, kingly title from Daniel 7. Daniel had a vision of the Son of Man, who, as Daniel described, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Now, most didn't acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, maybe a prophet or man blessed with God's power, but not the Son of Man. Jesus asked his disciples the question, not because he didn't know what people thought about him, but because he wanted to fortify the truth in their hearts and in their minds and direct them to God's blessing and revelation. Now, we've heard about the Son of Man in Matthew. Think back in chapter 9, Jesus healed a paralytic to reveal for the people that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
In chapter 12, Jesus said, for the authority, or for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And also said, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In chapter 13, Jesus taught that the Son of Man sows the sons of the kingdom in the world, commands angels, and is the judge who rids the kingdom of all sin and lawbreakers and brings the righteous to shine in the consummated kingdom of the Father. Jesus will then go on to say more about the Son of Man after chapter 16. The Son of Man is a big theme in Matthew. To truly trust Christ is to comprehend and confess Jesus as the Son of Man. Number three, Jesus is the Christ. This is big. This is really big. In the first chapter of Matthew, Matthew refers to Jesus as the Christ four times and then 12 times afterwards. He wants his readers to comprehend and to confess that Jesus is the Christ. Scripture presents Peter as the first among equals among the apostles. And as we would expect, when Jesus asked them all the question, Peter answered for the disciples, verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. The disciples knew him, and so many others obviously didn't. Now, Christ means anointed and is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah, And in the Old Testament, there were three primary offices to which God ordained and anointed men to serve. In 1 Kings 19.16, God spoke to Elijah, his prophet, and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mohalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And Elijah ordained and consecrated Elisha as God's chosen prophet. In Leviticus 8, according to God's command, Moses anointed Aaron's head with oil and consecrated him as Israel's high priest. In Exodus 28, verse 41, God told Moses, anoint them, referring to Aaron and his sons, and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Moses anointed, ordained, and consecrated Aaron as God's chosen high priest. 1 Samuel 10.1 says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, meaning Saul's head, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage." Saul was anointed as Israel's king to reign and rule over them, even to save them from their enemies. A bit later in 1 Samuel 16, 13, it says this, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, meaning David, in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel ordained, consecrated, and anointed both Saul and David as God's chosen kings. Now make sure that you understand this important point. The prophets, priests, and kings were all Christ's, foreshadowing the one preeminent, ordained, consecrated, and anointed prophet, priest, and king. They prefigured and pointed to Jesus the Christ. 
These offices are the background of Peter's great confession. One study note said this, Peter is the first person in this gospel to confess this title of Jesus. It means anointed and refers to a man whom God has chosen and empowered by his spirit to serve him in sacred office such as a prophet, a priest, and especially a king, end quote. Brothers and sisters, your comfort in life and in death and your eternal life are found in comprehending and confessing Jesus as your prophet, your priest, and your king. With Peter's confession, within Peter's confession are these glorious truths. A, Jesus is the preeminent prophet. B, Jesus is the preeminent priest. And see, Jesus is the preeminent king. And there's comfort in being aware, in being conscious of how Jesus loves and serves you in each of these distinct offices. And this is why Heidelberg 31 says what it does to help you comprehend and confess Christ, but also to help you consciously benefit from the ongoing ministry of Christ to you. Why is he called Christ that is anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. These are wonderful ways that the Christ continues to love and serve you. There's so much more there to unpack. But if someone came to you and they asked you the question, who do you say Jesus is? A great place to start would be to confess what Peter confessed. And then to know how Jesus as the Christ loves and serves you. Number four, Jesus is the son of the living God. Peter confessed for the apostles, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter's confession proves that Peter was hearing and believing Jesus. He was paying attention. Think back to Matthew eleven twenty five through 30, where, when Jesus declared this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus boldly said, my father, my father. 
And Peter heard and believed that Jesus is the Son of God. In Matthew 14, when Jesus and Peter climbed back into the boat after walking on water, the disciples worshipped Jesus saying, truly, you are the Son of God. These, these truths were become cemented in their hearts and minds. And Jesus being the Son of God, the, the Son of the living God, is inseparable from Jesus being the Christ. God promised David a royal son who would possess the throne forever, and God said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Additionally, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 speaks of the Lord's anointed God sets his anointed on Zion and God says of his anointed, you are my son, today I have begotten you. To the anointed and son of God, the Lord grants the nations and the ends of the earth. And at the end of Psalm 2, there's a command. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Oh, that you and I would kiss the son and that we would honor him and that we would submit in all things to him. Kiss the son. So let me transition into the next point like this. In John 6, many disciples were turning back. They were no longer following Jesus. They had had enough. Turn back. And then Jesus asked the 12 if they would like to go away as well. And Peter, dear Peter, confess, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What a confession. And listen to how Jesus responded. I find this striking. Did I not choose you, the 12? Do you understand what was going on there? That, that's big. Peter confidently boasted, we have believed. And Jesus responded, did I not choose you, the 12? Next, comprehending and confessing Christ is an unmatched blessing. In verse 17, Jesus said to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now, why did Jesus say that Peter was blessed? And the answer follows the conjunction for in the second part. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So make the connection there. Peter was blessed because God the Father supernaturally revealed Christ to him. Peter comprehended and Peter confessed Christ simply because the Father graciously enlightened Peter's mind and heart. And the same could be said of the others. They were truly blessed. They didn't figure it out on their own. The, the Father blessed them. We could say the Father favored them by revealing Christ to them. And not because of anything worthy in them, but in order to magnify his divine power, mercy, and grace. A sobering thought it is to realize that as a just act of judgment... God didn't reveal Christ to everyone. Many saw, but didn't see. I like how Jonathan Edwards paraphrased Jesus' words to Peter. How highly favored art thou, 
that others that are wise and great men, the scribes, Pharisees, and rulers, and the nation in general, are left in darkness to follow their own misguided apprehensions, and that thou shouldst be singled out, as it were, by name, that my heavenly Father should thus set his love on thee, Simon Barjona. This argues thee blessed, that thou shouldst thus be the object of God's distinguishing love. The blessing was to be the object of God's distinguishing and particular love. Comprehending and confessing Christ is not the result of human capacity, but the result of divine blessing, which leads nicely into my next point. Comprehending and confessing Christ is the direct result of divine and gracious revelation. Now, maybe you have a classic car. I know some of you have classic cars. And, uh, or maybe you've just been to a car show to see classic cars. So imagine that someone has a beautiful, beautiful classic car and it is under a black car cover and people gather around to see just what amazing classic car is under this cover and the owner comes and slowly pulls back the cover revealing a spotless red 1963 Ferrari 250 GTO, once named by Popular Mechanics the hottest car of all time. Pulling the veil back is revelation, a revealing of, of something that wows people because that revealing shows them what's underneath. Listen again to verse 17. It explains the blessing. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. When everyone else was blind and unable to see what was concealed, the Father pulled back the veil on Peter's and the disciples' hearts and revealed to them the reality and the glory of Jesus as the Christ. They saw because the Father graciously revealed Christ to their hearts and souls and minds. In other words, he made the blind see. Now, why would Jesus call Peter Simon bar Jonah or Simon son of Jonah? Why, why is he doing that? I think Jesus wanted to remind Peter that he was flesh and blood, that he was human, that he was incapable Jesus was the divine son of God. Peter was the human son of Jonah. And nothing human within Peter could bring him to confess Jesus as the Christ. His confession had a divine origin. The pride inside of us would like us to assume that we considered the matter carefully enough, that we weighed the options and that we wisely figured Jesus out on our own. That's what our pride would like us to think. Yes, we received grace, okay, but the final step with ours, it was ours and it was ours alone. Because if that's the case, then we can feel good about ourselves. We can feel worthy about our choice. And that there is a massive problem with the Arminian understanding of Scripture it acknowledges so-called prevenient grace and makes human choice the definitive and final step. It exalts human cleverness above God's grace. Dear ones, Jesus 
made it very clear why Peter was blessed in his comprehending and confessing Christ. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And this matters. How we think matters because we glorify what we believe to be the origin of our confession. And if the origin of our confession is within ourselves, we glorify ourselves. But if the origin is the Father, we glorify God. We have no one else to glorify but God. Calvin rightly said, quote, and let those who have received faith, acknowledging the blindness which was natural to them, learn to render to God the glory that is due to Him. With all the stubborn unbelief around Jesus, why did the disciples, why did the apostles get it? Was it because they just figured it out? They were so much better than everyone else? They just came to their senses one day? No, because the Father supernaturally revealed Christ to their souls and they confessed Jesus as the Christ and the Son of the living God. Dear brothers and sisters, we were dead in sin. We were blind in our sin. But God made us alive together with Christ He gave our blind souls sight and we confessed Christ. We needed divine revelation or it never would have happened. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew 11. I read it earlier. I'll connect it at this point. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom The Son chooses to reveal Him. Praise God's glorious and sovereign grace. Jesus reminded Peter and the disciples of the origin of their faith. He pushed them beyond themselves to see and to know the autonomous and the effectual power and grace of God. Paul got his doctrine of revelation from Jesus. Paul expounded this idea in 1 Corinthians 2. Paul wrote about imparting the secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God predestined before the ages. He mentioned that the rulers of this age didn't understand. They missed it. They they didn't get it. And then Paul wrote this. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Comforting. Assuring. Hopeful. Sinners receive the Spirit so that they might understand the things freely given them by God. Oh, the precious spirit. 
working in us. Revelation comes by the Spirit, not by human wisdom, not by flesh. And this is why Paul said later in 1 Corinthians 12 that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In Colossians 1, Paul said, God chose to make Christ known to his saints. God chose to reveal Christ to his elect. In Ephesians 1, Paul links predestination to God's blessing by saying, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Blessed us. That's the blessing. Saints, to comprehend and to confess Christ is divine blessing. Dear saints, you find yourselves now, today, even as I'm saying this, rejoicing in Christ, comprehending, understanding what I'm saying, and confessing Christ in your heart. And it's not because flesh and blood has revealed this to you, not because you figured Christ out and you took that definitive step, but because your heavenly Father has revealed the Christ to you and brought you to himself. And that is all the reason to rejoice and to be comforted. He's blessing you, dear ones. Oh, what grace, what peace, what comfort there is in these massive doctrines. Now, what might the truth that the Father was revealing Christ, what might that stir inside of you? What is supposed to arise from your heart? Might it stir gratitude? Might it stir praise? Might it stir comfort? Might it stir a sense of security and a sense of permanence in God's grace? See, if it was the Father who revealed the gospel of Christ to you, then the Father wants you to comprehend and to confess and will keep you in the Christ that you confess. There's so much comfort for you here. I hope that you can hear it. Next, comprehending and confessing Christ is the fail-safe outcome of faithful gospel ministry. Now, here's where the debates uh, could distract us from the comfort and assurance God has for us in these verses. Verse 18, Jesus said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a great verse. Christ will build his church and hell will not prevail against it. That's comforting. Uh, That's hopeful. That's reason to rejoice. God will save every last one of his chosen people and he will get them to their home in the consummated kingdom. There's no question about it. Jesus is the promise for he will save his people from their sins. That's a certain reality. That is a promise. Salvation is not possible. Salvation is not likely. Salvation is certain and effectual. Peter means rock and Jesus promised on this rock I will build my church. Now does that prove that Peter is the pope? Does that that say that the church should even have a pope? And it gets sticky, but I don't think so at all. That's not what that's saying. And the reason why is the very thing that clarifies the meaning of those difficult verses. So hang with me here. 
1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay? The foundation is clearly Jesus Christ, but I don't think that's the metaphor or point Jesus is making uh, in, in verse 18. In verse 18, Jesus is the builder, not the foundation. He is ultimately the foundation, but he doesn't seem to be saying that here. Now, Ephesians 2 talks about the household of God, or we could say the church, and says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's a different point. So in one sense, the apostles are the foundation upon whom Jesus continues to build his church. And Ephesians 2 says nothing of Peter's prominence or authority over the other apostles. Other scriptures prove that Peter had no unique authority over the other apostles. Often prominent, but always only equal. So I think Jesus was referring to Peter, but only as a representative apostle who confessed Jesus as the Christ. The apostles who, who confessed and preached Christ were the foundation upon which the new covenant was built. Confessing Peter was the rock. I'd argue the other confessing apostles were the rock as well. Calvin said, but it will be said, Christ addresses Peter alone. He does so because Peter alone, in the name of all, had confessed Christ to be the Son of God, and to him alone is addressed the discourse which applies equally to the rest. End of quote. Now, Jesus asked them all the question. Peter answered for them all. By addressing Peter, Jesus addressed them all. The others confessed, and through them, Christ built his church. Christ is still building his church through ministers of the gospel who proclaim the Christ Peter and the others confessed. That's Romans 10 and that's Matthew 28. And then Jesus said to Peter, who represented the other apostles, I will give you, that singular, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you, singular, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you, singular, loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter doesn't exclusively possess the keys because in other passages, the Matthew 18, like uh, Matthew 18 and John 20, all the apostles possess the keys, which only strengthens the argument that Jesus was speaking to Peter as a representative apostle. All the apostles. Now, keys, what do they do? They unlock and they lock doors. What keys unlock and lock heaven? What keys bind and loose? Well, to abbreviate the argument, heaven is open and closed to people through the preaching of the gospel and church discipline. You can study this more in Matthew 18, John 20, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, and Heidelberg 83 through 85. I think this one study note helpfully summarizes it. This metaphor specifies how the apostles are foundational to the church. They have been given binding and loosing powers or keys which lock and unlock doors. The apostles open the kingdom to those who share Peter's confession and exclude those who will not receive their testimony to Christ. The apostolic foundation of the church is laid in the written word of God, the scriptures, which are now the keys of Christ's authority in the church through the power of the Holy Spirit, end quote. 
when preachers faithfully preach the gospel, they are, with the authority of Christ, opening heaven for everyone who believes. That's what I'm doing. Heaven is open to you, believers. I'm telling you that on the authority of Christ's word. Heaven is open to you when you believe. And on the authority of Christ Jesus, the Lord, I am telling you, if you do not believe, heaven is closed to you. You will be locked out forever. That's, that's the authority of Christ speaking, not my authority. Ministers, by the authority of Christ, declare believers forgiven of their sins and justified. And at the same time, by the authority of Christ, they declare unbelievers unforgiven and condemned. We do it every week for a purpose. Christ gave the keys of heaven to the apostles who passed them on to ministers of the gospel and to elders. The keys of the gospel. The keys of the gospel are gospel preaching and, and the discipline of the church. And they open and close the kingdom of heaven. Christ gave that gospel authority to the apostles and then preachers after them. This is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Look at Acts 2, 3, 8, and 10. And you'll see Peter, we'll see this coming up. Uh, um, actually, if you, if you read throughout the book of Acts, you will see Peter exercising the keys. And then we're going to look soon at Matthew 18, where the keys are going to come up again in the coming weeks. So it would be worth your while to, to take some time on Heidelberg 83 through 85. That would really, really help cement this into your minds and hearts and uh, help you understand God's calling upon my life, upon the elders' lives, and upon our church. You're going to understand things so much better if you grasp 83 through 85. In verse 20, Jesus didn't want his disciples to broadcast that he was the Christ, which seems counterintuitive. It seems bizarre that he wouldn't. But quite frankly, and to keep it short, they weren't ready, and it wasn't time. Uh, but the time was quickly approaching. Lastly, finding comfort in comprehending and confessing Christ. This is bringing it all together. If, if you miss this, you've just, you've missed so much. I really want to help you connect some dots here so you can be comforted and, and leave here just excited. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the son of the living God. And as you comprehend and confess this, you are enjoying the Father's blessing who has revealed Christ to your heart and mind and soul. Your Father loves you. You knowing Christ confirms that you belong to the Father. The veil of sin that was over your eyes, it was blinding you. You could not see the glorious gospel of Christ, but the Father has drawn back the blinding veil and revealed to you the glories of Christ so that you would see and you would believe and you would confess and you would have comfort in Christ. You are blessed by the Father. Be thankful. Be grateful. Be worshipful. Be happy. Worship and serve your Father. Additionally, the apostolic witness to Christ is the power of God for salvation to you who believe. The apostolic gospel, the confession of the apostles which was passed on and preserved in Holy Scripture, Christ is building you. 
his church into this beautiful and magnificent temple. You are the temple. You are, we are the church. And brothers and sisters, let me remind you, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Christ is building. We will not see defeat for our Christ is defending us and our Christ is preserving us and our Christ is protecting us. Heaven is open to you, dear ones. And, and you will not be locked out because your glorious prophet, priest, and king has secured your entrance and will usher you through. Oh, take comfort in that. Magnify the glory of your Christ by delighting in the forgiveness of sins. Delight in that. You're washed clean. He loves you. He's given you Christ. You have your righteousness in him. Delight in the forgiveness of sins and then be so grateful you walk in newness of life. Repent. Trust Christ and walk out. Live out the commands because of who your father is and to whom you belong. And then wait, just, just wait for the return of the glorious king. Wait with patience, wait with holiness, wait with joy. This gospel is, comprehend it, confess it, and be comforted by it. 